Let us pray. Father God, um, today, thank you so much for the opportunity. And Lord, I pray for those uh, who are in the group that uh, they are able to participate uh, with our uh, BS Fellowship, oh God. And Lord, um, thank you so much for your word that uh, being our uh, guide in our daily lives, Lord, uh, give us wisdom and understanding in everything that you want to do to us tonight and that the people who will listen to this video would be blessed. And Lord, um, thank you so much for everything that, we're doing, that you are doing in our lives. And bless us all, God. All this I pray and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Yeah, so we got to talk a bit about a bit before the video about uh, what we've learned already and what we're going to learn. So John has just finished a pretty large section in his book about love in the body of Christ. And I think that's really his main point in this book. And he spends three chapters getting there. Actually, he spends two and a half chapters getting there. And he starts his section in the middle of chapter three. And it goes all the way through chapter four. So he's not going to leave this topic of love behind because it's such an important topic in his book. But now he's going to tie together a bunch of our pieces that we've learned already. Um, he's going to tie together faith, love, and our obedience. He puts that together with life, which he has uh, talked about briefly and shows us that our life comes through our faith and uh, that this all has to do with what we have believed. So we start in 1 John 5, 1, and he makes two statements. He says, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Now, this is an unqualified statement. There are no other conditions put onto the statement. You'll see his second statement is an addition. It's not changing the meaning of the first statement. The second statement is, and whoever loves the father loves the child born of him. So these are logically connected. That means that the one being true, the second should be true as well. In fact, the second, you can't have uh, one who loves the father and not one who loves the child. And you can't have one that loves the child, but not who loves the father. Those two depend on each other. But our faith in God does not depend on our love for God. That's important to understand for salvation. But what John is trying to bring the reader to is not salvation. He expects that his reader is already saved. He is trying to bring his reader to maturity, to spiritual maturity. For spiritual maturity, you do need both of these. You need not only to believe in Jesus Christ, that is the very basis of how we can love, but we also need to exercise that love. So that's where our obedient love comes into practice, that love isn't a feeling we have for God or a feeling we have for our brothers and sisters, but love is how we choose to interact with them. We interact with God in faith. We interact with our brothers and sisters self-sacrificially. That's how John started his uh, his discussion of love was talking about brotherly love in the body of Christ. You'll remember he brought up the topic of Cain and Abel, how Cain slew his brother because his brother's deeds were righteous and his deeds were wicked. 
So John gives us this very dramatic example from the very beginning of what happens when we are not obedient to God is that we are unloving towards our brothers and sisters. And it was so bad for Cain, who did not have faith, that he even killed his brother. And this is a heinous and atrocious act, but sadly, it's one that the Christian is capable of, especially when the Christian um, is not settled in his faith, when faith is not the basis of um, his actions, and when love is not his motivation. When love and faith are put together, there is perfect obedience to God in practice. That doesn't mean that faith and love automatically produces those things, but if faith and love are actually there, obedience is by necessity there as well. Otherwise, it's not truly love, because love isn't a feeling. Love is action in the biblical sense. So one thing I want to dig a little deeper in here is the content of faith. It says, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. So this is something that we were also talking about a little bit before uh, we started the video, that when Christ was on earth, he asked his disciples who he was. He wanted, to, uh, he wanted for them to explain their content of faith. What did they believe about who he was? Because what they believed about who he was would signify their salvation. So we have this question, who is Christ? And I want to go all the way back to the Old Testament because the Old Testament is all that existed for the disciples of Christ. The Old Testament, even for, well, I guess at John's time, parts of the New Testament were in existence. They were letters that could be read by the churches. But the foundational scriptures was still the Old Testament. So when John says that Jesus is the Christ, and when Peter says that Jesus is the Christ, they are referring to Old Testament passages that speak of Jesus Christ as the Messiah. Messiah is the Hebrew word. Christ is the Greek word for anointed one, the anointed one of God. So we look back and say, who then was the Messiah that Israel expected? And when we, we look at Isaiah, he has an answer for us. Um, this is his description of the Messiah who was to come. He says, surely our grief he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray, each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. So this is Isaiah talking about the suffering servant, the Messiah of God, the anointed one of God. So when we move from the Old Testament to the New Testament, the fact that Jesus Christ would pay for our sin penalty, or the fact even that Jesus Christ would die for us, 
was not new revelation. This was expected of the Messiah. Oh, Rowena has joined us. So here, I've written down a little synthesis of what we could expect of who the Messiah is. Uh, the Messiah is the anointed one of God, promised in the Old Testament to be a substitute sacrifice provided by God to pay for all the sins of the world, and he did so by offering his own blood. This is who the Messiah is, and this is who John is saying that we must believe in order to be born of God. So when we believe this content of faith, the Messiah and who he was and who he is, this is saving faith. That simple understanding and acceptance of this information saves. When we take this on the basis of faith, we have confidence that we will be made like him. So here in 1 Corinthians 15, we see that Paul agrees with this content of faith. But this he puts in New Testament words because we have further revelation. We have a more complete revelation of what Jesus has done past tense. So here, Paul speaks of the gospel that he has delivered to the church in Corinth. He says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures according to the scriptures, points back to that Isaiah 53 passage, as well as other parallel passages, when he says, according to the scriptures. So Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. So there are three things here about the Messiah, that Paul taught to first or to the Corinthians. He taught that Jesus died for the purpose of paying for our sins, that he was buried, confirming that his death was real. He didn't swoon, he didn't faint, he didn't pass out, but he actually died for our sins and was buried, and that he rose again because his resurrection is confirmation of our resurrection. Later in 1 Corinthians 15, a few verses later, he talks about Jesus Christ being the first fruits from the grave. So we not only have the promise of what is finished in Christ, but we have the promise of what is present in Christ. We know that uh, if we have believed in him, we've also been buried with him, and our old man is dead, and we now are born again in Christ, and we have the ability to live for Christ but it also speaks of our future, that just as Jesus Christ was raised from the grave, so we will be raised like him. So this is our content of faith during the church age. We believe who Jesus Christ said he was, past, present, and future. And this um, gives us hope as well. In fact, believing that Jesus Christ died for our sins gives us new life. We are born again the moment we believe this information. And the Bible does speak of this as new birth. Let's see, I've got a chat here. Love is action. Oh, sorry, Janet, I missed that one. Yes, love properly expressed is an action. Now, this doesn't mean that you're actually 
have to be physically doing something, but when it's naturally expressed, it's not just good feelings towards someone or benevolent thoughts or ideas, but it's actually expressed to that person um, through the Holy Spirit working in you. That might be comfort to that brother or sister when they need comfort. That might um, even come in uh, giving some physical uh, need of theirs, be it food or clothing uh, or money, if that's what the Holy Spirit leads you to do to love your brother and sister. Uh, John gave us the example of if you have a brother who, um, I believe it said, uh, doesn't have clothes, I think was his example, that yeah, you're not true. actually, yeah, you're not actually loving them if you see them in need and you choose not to uh, provide for their needs when you have the ability to. So love isn't just saying, oh, I wish, uh, I wish them all the best. I hope somebody will give them clothes. It's seeing that they are without clothes and clothing them. It's seeing that they have a need that you can fulfill and filling it. You can think of a mother and her child. A mother loves her child, not when she says, oh, I hope someone feeds that child, but when she feeds that child, when she sees a need and she fills it. Uh, so love is action. Uh, and that's, that's what John is talking about is love isn't just thinking good thoughts about people or uh, feeling good when you're around someone. Love isn't internal within you, but love is from one person to another. That love is expressed so that that other person experiences that love. Um, so in that way, love is action. Love isn't just any action, but action is the result of love. Does that make more sense? Okay, we can talk about it more, that's fine. Yeah, um, okay, but our new birth, why does the Bible speak of our new relationship to Christ as a new birth? And I think there are three main reasons here. Uh, the first one is permanence. Now, this speaks of our eternal security. Uh, it's, I wrote here that birth is a good metaphor for salvation because just like physical birth, spiritual birth cannot be undone. It is a one-time event which has permanent consequences. Once you are born, you cannot become unborn, and you cannot be born again in the same way. So look at Nicodemus's conversation with Jesus Christ in John 3. He is surprised when Jesus Christ tells him that he needs to be born again. But is Jesus Christ speaking of the same kind of birth as Nicodemus? Nicodemus asks if he should be uh, put back in his mother's womb so that he can be born again. He understands that birth is a one-time event. It happens once. But what Nicodemus fails to understand is that Jesus Christ is not talking of physical birth. Nicodemus is right. Physical birth can only happen once. But he should relate that to his spiritual birth then. Spiritual birth can also happen only once. He needs both kinds of birth that are one-time events. So our spiritual birth is a one-time event, and that's why it is uh, very well related to birth. It also has new life. So here the uh, birth in the Bible speaks of the whole process from conception to pregnancy to birth. Um, it's not just the moment that the child emerges uh, from the mother into the world, 
but it's the moment that this uh, child arrives in this world at conception. So just as new physical life comes through the birth process, so new spiritual life comes through faith in Jesus Christ. That when we have faith in him, our life is new just in the same way that our life is new at the time of our physical birth. But this new life is not a continuation of what was before. So when we are born again spiritually, we are not the same thing but changed. We are a new creation. Our life is brand new in him. It is not a new stage in life. It is entirely new life for the believer. And that is a shared life with Jesus Christ. And that brings us to our third point, and that's spiritual genetics. This is a principle that we see all the way from the very first chapter of Genesis, that like things give birth to like things. A seed produces after the same seed. So here, birth is not spontaneous. There is always a germ which God uses to produce life. That means there is always a seed of some sort. Life doesn't come from non-life, but life comes from God. That life is like its germ. It's the same kind. An apple tree cannot produce oranges, so one cannot produce the works of Christ unless he is born of Christ. Birth is a good metaphor for our salvation because we are like him, like Jesus Christ, when we are born again in the image of Christ. So we want to be like him. The only way to be like him is to be born through him. Oops, I copied that one twice. So here John has earlier spoken of being born of God as well. This time in the context, not of spiritual maturity, having confidence in our birth, uh, but in his book, his gospel, where he is actually leading unbelievers to faith. He says, as many as received him, that is through faith, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man but of God, through God's will, through God's means. We are born again at the moment of faith, and that is an eternal or eternally secure position in him. All right, now we get to obedience in the next two verses of 1 John. And again, he's going to make two statements. He says, by this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and observe his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. So what is he saying here? He is saying that love for God and love for our brothers is not only a commandment of God, but it's dependent on obedience to God's commandments that we can be saved without exercising love for God and love for our brothers, but spiritual maturity depends on us being obedient to God. In the same way that we can still be the children of our parents if we are disobedient children. In fact, almost all of us go through that teenage phase where we uh, at some point yell at our parents, I hate you, uh, and we might actually mean it. But this does not make us not their children but it does show that we are not mature. It does show our lack of maturity uh, in this life in the same way 
that a lack of love for God and a lack of love for our brothers and sisters in Christ, that means a lack of love for our family in God, shows our spiritual immaturity. So if we want to grow spiritually, then we use our love as a motivator to do the works of God through the Holy Spirit, which is to love our brothers and sisters in a godly manner. That isn't good feelings. That is action when we're called to action. So uh, this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. So you'll remember we've talked a bit about the law of Moses and the law of Christ. The law of Moses had as a motivation blessing and cursing. It had that motivation that if you don't follow the law of Moses for Israel, then they would be cursed. They would be kicked out of their land. They would be punished. But you remember John's argument here is that perfect love casts out fear. We don't have the fear of punishment because we have a different motivator than Israel had to follow the law of Moses. We have the law of Christ, and the motivation isn't do this so that you will be blessed, but do this because you are already blessed. Your blessing is promised in Christ. No matter what, you will be with him and you'll be conformed to his image. Uh, there is no fear in death because we have Jesus Christ who is our life, and it is an eternal life and it's an unquenchable life. It cannot be put out because the life comes from Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ's life cannot be put out, so neither can ours. So we don't fear. We don't obey God in order to avoid punishment. We obey God because we have been blessed by him and we want to walk in his blessings. Those are provided for us. They're ready and available for us. It says our good works have been prepared already for us. It is only up to us to walk in those good works that have been prepared by the Spirit. So when he says they are not burdensome, what does that mean? First, what are the works of God? What is it that we are expected to do? Here, Jesus answers that question in John 6, um, when he is talking to, uh, to a group of Jews. So Jesus answered them and said, truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. So what happened? Jesus Christ gave them food to eat, and they are following after him because he is meeting their physical needs. So what does he say? Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life. He's telling them, you are looking for me meeting your physical needs, but I'm here to provide for your spiritual needs. And they need to seek those spiritual needs and that fulfillment. So which the Son of Man will give to you for on him the Father God has set his seal. He continues, therefore they said to him, what shall we do so that we may work the works of God? They're saying, okay, what do we need to do in order to get this um, this uh, eternal life. And he said, Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. So this is his first commandment, belief. He wants us to continue in our faith as well. But remember, Jesus here is speaking to unbelievers. He's trying to bring them into the family of God. 
So the first commandment by necessity is faith. And that is the commandment given to the unbelieving world. That is the commandment that they are guilty of breaking is to believe in Jesus Christ. For us, we enter the body of Christ. We enter the family of God through faith. When we believe, we are obedient as unbelievers so that we become believers. When we are believers, we continue in our faith so that we are obedient as children. Our faith should not fail. But if it does, we're still children, but we are not obedient and maturing children. So how can we do the works of God? In John 15, later in the, in the same gospel, John writes, you, uh, John writes the words of Christ, who says, you are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you, and that is the word that they believed. Uh, they are already washed clean because of their faith. So what does he say then after this? Abide in me and I in you. Stay in me. Don't go outside of me. Continue. Remain. Um, abide in me. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. So you remember, um, an apple tree cannot produce oranges. Well, here he's probably talking of grapes. Um, but an apple tree, to keep our uh, previous metaphor, cannot produce oranges. So if we want to produce oranges, the work of Christ, the first requirement is that we be changed, that we be changed into an orange tree. And that is what it is like having our first faith. We are changed into an orange tree. Now we have those branches, but if we cut those branches off from the tree, they can't produce oranges either. Our responsibility is to remain as part of that orange tree by remaining in Christ. If we get cut off from the tree, we're still an orange tree. Being an orange tree is what's necessary to be saved. But remaining in that orange tree as part of the, uh, the sap of the branches that flows through it is uh, what is necessary to produce fruit. We stay in the orange tree. We stay in Christ um, so that we can be fruitful. We're not changed back into an apple tree if we leave the orange tree. Um, but we are cut off from bearing fruit. So as a branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. We have to continue in our faith, the same faith that saved, in order to produce the fruit of the Spirit. For I am the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, he can do nothing. So now let's look at one of the commands that John has focused on so much. Uh, all right, Janet says, so the one who is cut is not about losing salvation, but cannot bear fruit and are those who are cut off. Yeah, so I go to James 2, uh, I think it's verses 12 and verse 20 or 24, something around there, uh, where he talks about uh, operational death operational death is the death of the ability to produce fruit. That's James speaking didactically of the same uh, message which uh, John or Jesus here in the, uh, in the uh, upper room discourse is speaking of. Jesus is giving us a metaphor of staying in the branches so that we can produce fruit. 
James is giving us uh, basically a textbook answer. He's distilled the metaphor of Christ and he's giving it to us as doctrine, um, saying basically, if we don't want to be dead branches, we continue uh, and our faith has action. Uh, so faith without works is dead. That's what he's speaking of, is uh, faith that isn't producing is actually dead faith. It's faith that's been cut off from the branches. Again, you're still a branch, but you've been cut off from the source that produces fruit through you. He's talking about spiritual maturity, Christian fruitfulness, not salvation. Salvation is dealt with in other passages. It's not in the context of James, and it's not here in the context of John 15, because you'll remember in John 15, starting in John 14, actually, and going all the way through John 16, Jesus Christ is talking to his disciples, and not all 12 of them, but only the 11 who believed. He's talking to saved believers whom he has given already confidence and assurity of their salvation. Here he's talking about the work that they'll be expected to do uh, after his departure. He's training them to be the apostles of the church after he has ascended back to heaven. Uh, so yeah, in the context here in John 15, he's not talking about salvation or loss of salvation. He's talking about fruitfulness and maturity in the body of Christ. Uh, and that's a good distinction to make, because if we have fear that we'll lose our salvation, we lose the power to actually do good works, because rather than having a love motivation, we have a fear motivation. And we're back under the same motivation as the Mosaic Law, which was unsuccessful for that very reason. The motivation was wrong, and it led to legalism rather than to love. Uh, so because we are in a love relationship with Christ and we have confidence that in the day of Christ we will be conformed to his image, uh, we uh, simply maintain our faith. And by maintaining our faith, we stay in the body of Christ, we stay in the branches, and that way we are able to be used by the Spirit to produce good fruit. We don't have to produce good fruit ourselves. In fact, we can't. Um, the branches don't produce the fruit, but the root produces fruit through the branches. Um, so it's the same for us. And here is one of those fruits, um, is to love one another. And that's, again, what John is focused on in this latter part of his epistle. Um, so in John 15, a few verses after he speaks of abiding in the branches, he says, this I command you, that you love one another. So what he is giving us here is a cycle. We love God by loving God's children, and God's children love God by loving his other children. It is through God that we are able to love our, uh, or it's through our love for God that we're able to love God's children. And it's because God loved us that any of that is possible. But we love God by loving God's children. We can't have one and not the other. If we have one and not the other, the cycle is broken and it cannot exist. So both of these are necessary, loving God and loving our brothers and sisters, because essentially they're the same thing. We love God by loving our brothers and sisters, and we love our brothers and sisters by loving God. And this is spiritual maturity. We mature in Christ uh, by this means, which is through faith. All right, finally, here in Matthew 11, uh, 
I want to bring out this last statement of Christ before we move into our last passages in John. Um, and he says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He's speaking to the Jews who are under the law of Moses, um, the law of Moses, which is oppressive over them. Because of this law, and because of the motivation behind this law, true spiritual faithfulness is not possible. Uh, they are only convicted in their crimes. They are not given the means and the ability to escape their sinfulness. They are only shown their sinfulness by the law. Jesus Christ is giving them an avenue to escape their sinfulness, to walk away from that body of death, um, and to become a new creation in him. So he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And this is the law of Christ. It is a light yoke for us to bear. We are to love our brothers and sisters with the same love that Jesus Christ gave to us. And we're, we are to obey the commands of Christ from the motivation of love on the basis of faith because of the salvation that is already finished within us. So this is our light yoke that we take on in Christ to love one another and to be a part of the body of Christ. So here is how John finishes this section on love before he uh, goes in a little bit more depth about the testimony of our faith, uh, which we're going to look at next week. So here he writes, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And he's already defined this whatever for us. It's whoever believes. So whoever believes is born of God and overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. And that is our faith. Faith is the victory. Once we have faith in Jesus Christ, the victory is ours. It has already been uh, rendered to our account. It is settled for us. There is no undoing that victory. So who is the one who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is our victory. This is what has overcome the world. And that is because Jesus overcame the world. And when we are born in and through him, we overcome the world with him, through him. So he writes here, Paul writes in the end of 1 Corinthians 15, he says, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. Remember, we are no longer under the law. We are no longer under that heavy burden and that heavy yoke, but we are under the yoke of Christ, which is a light yoke to bear. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. So because we take on the yoke of Christ, we have the ability to be faithful to all of these commandments of Jesus Christ. We are steadfast, we are immovable, and we are abounding in the works of God on the basis of what? On the basis of our faith. When we maintain faith, when we abide in Christ, when we rest in the branch of Christ, we can do the works of Christ because the Spirit is doing them through us. 
So in John 16, uh, he says, or Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Behold, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered. He's talking about tribulations. We have tribulations in our lives. Each to his own home and to leave me alone. And yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage because I have overcome the world. So at this time, in this day, and in this age, uh, we don't see Christ physically in front of us. And John recognizes this when he is uh, writing his epistle, because he gives us um, his eyewitness statement in the very first uh, verses of John. He says, I was there, I saw him, essentially, I touched him. Uh, we know from John's account that he was a close, intimate friend of Jesus Christ. And we might look at John and say, I will never have the relationship with Christ that you had because you were his best friend. You held his hand, you laid on his chest. Um, we might feel as if we can never have that relationship with Christ. And what John is writing to tell us is no, you have that relationship with Christ because you are born of him. And when you are in the body of Christ, when you are among his children, among the believers, then you share in the same love because it's the love of Christ working through us that goes out to our brothers and sisters. So we are experiencing that same love. And that gives us this confidence and this peace in Christ so that even in this world, while we're not present with Christ, uh, we can have that peace of knowing that we've overcome the world through Christ. Uh, Janet asks, uh, this is not the tribulation that will happen after the rapture. Will you clarify please about the word tribulation? Yes. Uh, no, this is not the context of the tribulation. This is Jesus telling his disciples um, that he is about to be arrested, tried, and uh, crucified. He's not using those explicit words, but he is speaking of the scattering that is going to happen to them um, at the time of his crucifixion, that when he's arrested, they're going to be scattered physically. Uh, they are going to be persecuted by the world uh, not during the tribulation here, but just in this world. We remember that this whole world rests in the hands of the evil one. Um, and elsewhere, it says that uh, we should not be, actually, I think it says it just uh, a couple of verses after this, uh, that we shouldn't be surprised when the world hates us because it first hated him. Um, so he's actually speaking not of the great tribulation, the tribulation uh, that will come after the church age, but he's actually speaking of the church age. The church age is a period of tribulation for us, but because of our new life in him, we have confidence for the day of salvation that we will be conformed to his image, and that gives us peace in these tribulations. You remember that uh, perseverance produces uh, uh, peace, and that peace, what is it, perseverance produces um, good character and good character produces something and something produces hope. Uh, I'm uh, blanking on that third one, but essentially uh, we are called on to have hope um, through our tribulations. Um, so yes, we are now in the church age. Um, so this verse does apply to us um, because uh, 
You could even say that we are scattered across the world, though not by tribulation. Uh, we are spread across the world and in our different areas in the world. We undergo different kinds of tribulation as the body of Christ. Different sorts of persecutions, um, some violent, some merely social. Uh, but the church is uh, not the ruling power in this world. And it shouldn't be. It's not supposed to be. The kingdom of Christ will be the ruling power in this world. The church is an intercalation. That means a parenthesis in time. The church is a parenthesis from the time of Christ's arrival to pay for our sins to the time where Christ comes again to take away all the sins of the world and rule perfectly as the king over this world. So right now, uh, we are in a parenthesis. We are in a period of time which is uh, building the church of God, building the people of God out of the nations of this world. Um, so right now, the nations of the world, because they belong to Satan, uh, is going or are going to be against the church because the church is, uh, is behind enemy lines right now. We are on the other side of the war zone. We're not in friendly territory here. But we are to have hope because we have peace in Christ, because we know that our victory is in him and he has been perfectly victorious, that uh, nothing in this world can touch us. And Paul, again, um, had this same hope and he has this exclamation to make at the end of his life. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished, oh, excuse me, I have finished the course I have kept the faith. These are all the same thing, keeping the good fight, finishing the course, and keeping the faith. How he finishes the fight or how he finishes the course is through faith. His faith did not fall away. His faith did not fail. How did he fight the good fight? By faith. Because he had faith, he was able to fight. Uh, that was against the powers of the evil one. In Ephesians, he tells us that uh, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, uh, but against the uh, powers of darkness in this world. Uh, so that is the good fight that he is fighting. So he has this statement to make, in the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So we talked about this, I think last time, maybe it was uh, two sessions ago, the third one down, the crown of righteousness is what Paul is speaking of, that the uh, continuance of our faith produces riches in heaven, and that is the crown of righteousness, which we will be able to cast before the feet of Christ uh, on the day of judgment, when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Uh, we will be awarded for our faithful service in this earth. And uh, one of those crowns is the continuation of our faith throughout our life. All right. Um, I think we talked about this already. Uh, I'm just going to briefly summarize these just so that we remember that our faith uh, or our salvation is in three different time zones, in three different tenses. Uh, so the one is taken care of already at the cross of Christ. Um, that means it's already paid for 2,000 years um, before right now. Uh, 
At the cross, the penalty for our sin was paid. Christ has paid our just penalty for sin, and that penalty was death. Remember, he is the Messiah. He died for our sins, and when we believe that, we are saved. Um, if we believe in him, our penalty is paid, and we are justified before God. That is how this uh, is added to our account. Since power then is resting in the branches of Christ, when we rest in the branch, uh, we uh, overcome progressively the power that sin has over us. So this world is fraught with the presence of sin. Even our mortal bodies still groan under the curse and our old self wrestles with the new creation of God. But needless to say, Christians are not sinless, far from it. But if we abide in Christ, that is to rest in his branches, to continue in the faith, we are sanctified, that means progressively cleansed, from our sins. The power of sin, its grip over us, is loosed as we abide in him. And then we have this future hope that sin's presence will be removed from before us when Christ returns. It will no longer be a temptation for us. So Christ came first to pay the price for our sins, and he is coming again to take us from the presence of sin, that when he returns, we will be glorified and we will never wrestle with sin again. It will be purged finally when God makes all things new. All right, so with that, uh, we finish and I'll end in prayer and then we can have a little bit of discussion because I think some of you have to get to bed. Uh, so let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for this uh, promise of your burden being light, of your yoke being easy. Uh, we thank you that you have given us a new motivation in love. We thank you that you have uh, given us the ability through the spirit and uh, the promise that through faith alone, we are victorious over this world, that we have no need for fear because our perfect love casts out fear. Uh, when we grow spiritually and grow mature in you, um, we have this confidence and it grows ever more um, secure in our minds uh, that we will not be left behind and we will not be unchanged on the day of your arrival. Um, but that our sanctification will be finally finished and we will be glorified to be like you. And with that hope, we have confidence for today. Uh, so we thank you for the brothers and sisters across the world. Uh, we thank you for all who might uh, watch this video and be edified by it. Uh, we thank you for those in our immediate Bible study fellowship group. We pray for their families and for their own ministries and for their spiritual edification, that they will also have the confidence of Christ because of the victory that we have in our faith. We ask all these things, Lord, in your name and for your glory. Amen. Amen.